He became like unto a god. People came from everywhere to listen to his random babbling and try to find a conduit to the state of blissful innocence buried under the weight of their wisdom. It was inevitable that someone would see a prophet in this, a consortium with a name we would translate as Blank Slate, offered to decouth anyone who had a certain large sum of what passed for money and maintain them for as long as they wanted. At first, people were slightly outraged because it was a kind of sacrilege, or were slightly amused because it was such a transparent scheme to gather what passed for wealth. Sooner or later, though, uh, everyone tried it. Uh. Most who tried it for one year went back for ten or a hundred, or eventually forever. After some centuries, permanent decoots began to outnumber humans, though those humans were not anything you would recognize as people, crushed as they were by nearly a thousand years of wisdom and experience, and jealous of those who had given up. On 31 December, A.D. 3000, the last normal person surrendered his loneliness for decouth bliss. The world was populated completely by total innocence, tended by patient machines. It lasted a long time. And then, one by one, the machines broke down. Crime and Punishment Eventually it came to pass that no one ever had to die, unless they were so horrible that society had to dispose of them. Other than the occasional horrible person, the world was in an idyllic state, everyone living as long as they wanted to, doing what they wanted to do. <laughs> this, this is how things got back to normal. People gained immortality by making copies of themselves, Farleys, which were kept in safe places and updated periodically. So if you got run over by a truck or hit by a meteorite, your Farley would sense this and automatically pop out and take over after prudently making a Farley of itself. Upon that temporary death, you would lose only the weeks or months that had gone by since your last update. That made it difficult to deal with criminals. If someone was so horrible that society had to hang or shoot or electrocute or inject him to death, his Farley would crop up somewhere, still bad to the bone, making a Farley of itself, <laughs> and go off on another rampage. If you put him in jail for the rest of his life, he would eventually die, but then his evil Farley would leap out full of youthful vigor and nasty intent. Now, ultimately... If society felt you were too horrible to live, it would take preemptive action. Check out your folly and destroy it first, if it could be found. Really bad people became adept at hiding their follies. Inevitably, people who were really good at being really bad became master criminals. It was that or die forever. There were only a few dozen of them, but they moved through the world like neutrinos, Effortless, unstoppable, invisible. One of them was a man named Bad Billy Beerbreath. He started the ultimate crime wave. There were Farley centers where you would go to update your Farley. One hundred of them all over the world. And that's where almost everybody kept their Farley stored. 
but you could actually put a Farley anywhere if you got together enough liquid nitrogen and terabytes of storage and kept them in a cool, dry place out of direct sunlight. Most people didn't know this. In fact, it was forbidden knowledge. Nobody knew how to make Farley centers anymore either. They were all built during the lifetime of Farley, who had wandered off with the blueprints after deciding not to make a copy of himself himself. Bad Billy Bearbreath decided to make it his business to trash Farley centers. In its way, this was worse than murder, because if a client died before he or she found out about it and hadn't been able to make a new Farley, which took weeks, he or she would die for real, kaput, out of the picture. It was a crime beyond crime. Just thinking about this gave Bad Billy an acute pleasure akin to a hundred orgasms. Because there were a hundred <laughs> Bad Billy beer breaths. In preparation for his crime wave, Bad Billy had spent years making a hundred farleys of himself, and he stored them in cool, dry places out of direct sunlight all around the world. On 13 May 2999, all but one of those farleys jump-started itself and went out to destroy the nearest Farley Center. By noon, GMT... Police and militia all over the world had captured or killed or subdued every copy but one of Bad Billy. But by noon, every single Farley Center in the world had been leveled, save the one in Akron, Ohio. The only people left who had Farleys were people who had a reason to keep them in a secret place. Master criminals like Billy, pals of Billy... They all were waiting at Akron and held off the authorities for months by making Farley after Farley of themselves, like broomsticks in a Disney cartoon, sending most of them out to die, or die, defending the place, until there were so many of them the walls were bulging. Then they sent out word that they wanted to negotiate. And during the lull that promise produced, they fled en masse, destroying the last Farley center behind them. They were a powerful force. A hundred thousand hardened criminals united in their contempt for people like you and me. And in their loyalty to bad Billy Beerbreath, <laughs> somewhat giddy, not to say insane, in their triumph after having destroyed every Farley Center, they went on to destroy every jail and prison and courthouse. That did cut their numbers down considerably, since most of them only had 10 or 20 families tucked away. But it also reduced drastically the number of police, not to mention the number of people willing to take up policing as a profession. Since once somebody killed you twice, you had to stay dead. By New Year's Eve, A.D. 3000, the criminals were in charge of the whole world. Again... War and peace. Eventually, it came to pass that no one ever had to die unless they wanted to or could be talked into it. That made it very hard to fight wars, and a larger and larger part of every nation's military budget was given over to psychological operations directed toward their own people. Dolce et decorum est just wasn't convincing enough anymore. There were two elements to this sales job. One was to romanticize the image of the soldier as heroic defender of the blah, 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 
And that was not too hard. They've been doing that since Homer. The other was more subtle, convinced people that every individual life was essentially worthless, your own, and also the lives of the people you would eventually be killing. That was a hard job, but the science of advertising, more than a millennium after Madison Avenue, was equal to it, through the person of a genius named Manny O'Malley. The pitch was subtle and hard for a person to understand who has not lived for centuries, but shorn of Manny's incomprehensible humor and appeal to subtle pleasures that had no name until the 30th century, it boiled down to this. A thousand years ago, they seduced people into soldiering with the slogan, Be all that you can be, but you have been or you can be. <laughs> the only thing left worth being is not being. Everybody else is in the same boat. O'Malley convinced them. In the process of giving yourself the precious gift of non-existence, share it with many others. It's hard for us to understand, but then we would be hard for them to understand with all this remorseless getting and spending laying waste our years. Wars were all fought in Death Valley with primitive hand weapons and the United States grew wealthy renting the place out until it inevitably found itself fighting a series of wars for Death Valley, during one of which O'Malley himself finally died, charging a phalanx of no longer immortal pikemen on his robotic horse, waving a broken sword. His final words were famously, oh shit. Death Valley eventually wound up in the hands of the Bettelsman Corporation, which ultimately ruled the world. But by that time, Manny's advertising had been so effective that no one cared. Everybody was in uniform, lining up to do their bid for Bertelsmann. Even the advertising scientists, even the high management of Bertelsmann. There was a worldwide referendum utilizing something indistinguishable from telepathy, where everybody agreed to change the name of the planet to Death Valley. And on the eve of the new century, A.D. 3000, have at each other. Thus, O'Malley's ultimate ad campaign achieved the ultimate victory, a world that consumed itself. In the way of all flesh... Eventually it came to pass that no one ever had to die, so long as just one person loved them. The process that provided immortality was fueled that way. Almost everybody can find someone to love him or her, <clears throat> at least for a little while, and if and when that someone says goodbye, most people can clean up their act enough to find yet another. But every now and then you find a specimen who is so unlovable that he can't even get a hungry dog to take a biscuit from his hand. Babies take one look at him and get the colic. Women cross their legs as he passes by. Ardent homosexuals drop their collective gaze. Old people desperate for company feign sleep. The most extreme such specimen was Custotralia, 
Custer came out of the womb with teeth and bit the doctor. In grade school, he broke up the love training sessions with highly toxic farts. <laughs> he celebrated puberty by not washing for a year. All through middle school and high school, he made loving couples into enemies by spreading clever, vicious lies. He formed a masturbation club <laughs> and didn't allow anybody else to join. In his graduation yearbook, he was unanimously voted the one least likely to survive if we have anything to do with it. In college, he became truly reckless. When everybody else was feeling the first whiff of mortality and frantically seducing in self-defense, Custer declared that he hated women almost as much as he hated men, and he reveled in his freedom from love, his superior detachment from the cloying crowd. Death was nothing compared to the hell of dependency. When at the beginning of his junior year he had to declare what his profession was going to be, he wrote down hermit for first, second, and third choices. The world was getting pretty damned crowded, though, since a lot of people loved each other so much they turned out copy after copy of themselves. The only place Custer could go and be truly alone was the Australian outback. He had a helicopter drop him there with a big water tank and crates of food. They said they'd check back in a year, and Custer said, Don't bother. If you've decided not to live forever, a few years or decades one way or the other, don't make much difference. He found peace among the wallabies and dingoes. A kangaroo began to follow him around, and he accepted it as a pet, sharing his rehydrated Kentucky fried chicken and fish and chips with it. Life was a pleasantly sterile and objectless quest. Custer and his kangaroo quartered the outback, turning over rocks just to bother the things underneath. The kangaroo was loyal, which was a liability, but at least it couldn't talk, and its attachment to Custer was transparently selfish, so they got along. He taught it how to beg, and by not rewarding it, taught it how to whimper. One day, like Robinson Crusoe, he found footprints. Unlike Robinson Crusoe, he hastened in the opposite direction. But the footprinter had been watching him for some time and outsmarted him. Knowing he would be gone all day, she had started miles away, walking backward by his camp, and knew that his instinct for hermitage would lead him directly, perversely, back into her cave. Pocky Guma... <laughs> Haki Guma, had decided to become a hermit, too, after she read about Custer's audacious gesture. But after about a year, she wanted a bath and someone to love her so she wouldn't die in that order. So under the wheeling Milky Way on the eve of the 31st century, she stalked backward to her camp.